Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Inner Fight Podcast. My name is Michael Smith. I'm the host of the show, and I appreciate you guys being here today. I appreciate every time you come and listen to the show, whether it's the five-minute shows that we put out on a Monday or whether it's these longer shows that I do actually always try and keep under an hour. I know it looks like there's more than an hour in today's show. That's because the conversation was so good, and I basically cut it at an hour, but there's the intro and there's some announcements, so it looks like it's a little bit longer. But I do appreciate all of you guys. If you're enjoying the show, please do hop over to the platform that you listen to it on, rate it, review it, share it with someone. And if you don't, then just stop listening. That's fine too. But don't stop listening. But do stop listening. Who knows? But please, the way that the show grows and the way that we can help other people is by you guys sharing the show. So if you do feel inclined to share it, then please do so. My guest today was introduced to me by a long-time supporter of the show and a long-term friend of mine personally and of Inner Fight. Of course, none other than the beautiful Arij said to me quite a while back, at the back end of last year, I have a beautiful friend who I think you'll have a fantastic conversation with. When someone says that to me, I know it's going to be great. Of course, good things take time and it took us a few weeks to put this or to lock this guest in. I've been away, they've been busy, but today I got to talk to them. We talk about so many different things. We talk about cultural differences, sensitivities, understanding your past, understanding your future, dealing with illness, dealing with change. And of course, all of this is rooted in dealing with mindset. And ultimately, as the title suggests, understanding how just simply you, who you are and course to be you. I love this conversation. I love this human being, the way that she put herself over. It was insanely inspiring for me. As you can probably tell, the energy I have in my voice just introducing today's guest. And as I say towards the end of the show, and I really mean it, I'm absolutely committed to following today's guest's journey and getting her back when she's ready to come back. I probably should have asked her before we started recording, but I didn't ask her until the end if she'd ever done a podcast before, and she hadn't. I also didn't give her my normal warning that if I ask a question that you're not comfortable to answer, just don't bother answering and I'll ask you another one, which I give to all the guests. And then A, I don't have to edit it, and B, it's not comfortable. So given those two things, she did a fantastic job for us. This week's show announcements. What have we got for you? We have probably one week late. I'm a little bit late to the party on this, and this is the first time we've actually done it, but I want to acknowledge our members of the month for January. We have one, two, three, four, five, six, five, six. Members of the month to acknowledge. Our member of the month from the gym is Mo. Our member of the month from our youth program is Jamana. Our member of the month from our... Dubai-based, UAE-based endurance section is Craig. From our Ladies Run Club is Megan. There's six. From our island in a fight endurance is Paul. And from our New Zealand in a fight endurance is Blake. Congratulations to all of our members of the month. Second point. Yes, you might see it if you're watching the video version. I have, based on... Based on Tom Walker buying Remarkable, I then got absolutely drilled with Remarkable ads and I finally conceded to getting Remarkable. I want to know who's got Remarkable, and this is an important show announcement, obviously. Who's got a Remarkable? How are you using it? And what can you teach me? We'll exchange secrets. Not that I have that many, but I'm not selling this very well. We'll exchange practices, tricks, secrets, and techniques. How can you get the most out of it? This week's show notes or this week's announcements are being read from Remarkable. Anyway, I will continue. This week is testing week here at the gym, and we have seen some incredible results. We last did testing week about 12 weeks ago, so sort of November time. Build a program, a fitness program that 
we hope makes people stronger and fitter and we're seeing some really fantastic results. So congratulations to everyone who's been through Intestine Week and who's committed to the program over the last 12 weeks. You are seeing some great results. We're very happy for you. It's not the program. Well, it is partially the program, but it's definitely your hard work that you've put in there. Next week in the class program, we're actually mixing things up a little bit. we going into kind of like a fun week where every day is quite a little bit different. Some days are very hard. Some days are hard. So very hard to very hard to hard to not very hard to very hard. No, there's not a day that's not very hard. It's a little bit more fun, a little bit less structured before we then go into another six-week block, which also takes us through the open time as well. If you're interested more to hear about how we structure the class program, give us a shout or speak to one of the coaches. They would be absolutely delighted to talk about the structure of the class program, why we put it together, how we put it together. Other things that we have been talking to people about and doing recently, which may be interesting to you, is we are actually putting or have put together in the past since about 2015, a lot of different kind of corporate team building days. And on the back of our coaches summit, probably no surprise, we've had a few different inquiries on that as well. So if your company, I guess this is an advert in a way, as well as an announcement. If your company, if you want some corporate team building, bring people together, host, facilitate, provoke different conversations with your team members to hopefully get them to come closer to each other, please do reach out. Give us a shout. It's something that we do. We bespoke it. There's no program. We're not going to send you a big PDF. We're going to give you a shout. We're going to listen to what's going on in your organization, maybe some potential problems that you have, and then we'll put together maybe two hours, maybe six or eight hours, or maybe we'll do a full 24 hours show no weakness like we did for the guys at House and House, which if you're in the UK, you might have seen that on BBC Three. Yeah. We made it on BBC Three, making people bury each other alive in the middle of the desert in Al-Qudra. It's pretty cool. That is corporate team building. What's going on in the next week? Aside from that fun week in the gym, we have quite a decent race. The Ironman brand 70.3 is down in Oman, where we have a bunch of athletes racing next weekend. It's going to be super cool. It's great for Tom and I as well. We're taking Ben Graham down there for a few days mountain biking before. If you're in Oman next week, give us a shout or come down and support the athletes. Big shout out to all of those guys as well. That is it for this week's show announcements. I'll close down my remarkable and crack on with the show. This is episode number 876 of the Inner Fight Podcast. Be you with Samia Dugman. No matter where you are in the world, thanks for listening to the Inner Fight Podcast. Let's jump into today's show. Here we go. This, uh, I feel like our 30-minute intro or get to know each other we've covered so many things mm. Samia you have an incredible story I've just called you the best PR person in the world that you're it's <laughs> Thank you <for> <laughs> let's start at the start give us a little bit of your background where are you from we've got a lot of stuff to tell we'll try and keep it under an hour but start at the start for us okay um so I'm half half my name's Samia. A lot of people ask, you know, well, where's the name from? But you've got a British accent. But, you know, we can't quite work out what's going on here. Are you British? Are you? So um, my story is my dad's from Libya. My mum's English. I grew up in Libya, in the desert, not in central Tripoli. I grew up on the outskirts, yeah. in the middle of the desert, very sort of Bedouin area of Libya. I stayed there till the age of... 15, so I went to an Arabic school up until the age of 15. And then my parents decided it was time to move to the UK and <laughs> go to a British school. So you can imagine, you know, the transition from like Arabic curriculum, very traditional Libyan <laughs> school to have you got a pony and do you play polo? And, you know, wow. what sports are you getting? I'd never done sport in my life because Libyans, Libyan school is quite traditional girls right. didn't do sport at that time oh. right so then I went from that to having to play hockey and rounders and things that I'd never heard of before in like minus two and <laughs> so oh. it's a huge culture shock um but I ended up staying sort of at school to do my GCSEs and A levels stayed in the UK to do my university degree as well mm. so that was kind of my stretch where I lived in the UK and then went back to Libya for visits here and there because my parents still live in Libya even 
after sort of all the trouble in 2011, they stayed out there. Um, And then I moved to London, got my first job, you know, graduated from uni and I was like, yeah, I want to move to London, you know, and be a London girl and experience the city. And my dad was like, you're crazy, you know, he's like, (laughs) he's like, you need to come back home and get a job in Libya and do, you know, you're supposed to just stay there to finish uni and then come back home. And I was like, you know what, I want to do this on my own, Dad. I want to move to London and and give it a try. And he was like, you know, in in Arab culture, that's kind of a difficult thing for a parent to accept that, you know, as a a woman, that I was just going to stay in the UK and live in London on my own. And my dad was like, okay, well, you're completely on your own then, you know, go off and do it. And I did. So started my first job and then eventually ended up in Dubai 13 years ago. So, yeah. <laughs> the Dubai trap. The Dubai trap, yeah, but uh, it's the biggest blessing, you know. Sure. Especially when you're from two different worlds, it's yeah. it's the perfect place. So I couldn't imagine being anywhere else. What's ringing in my mind, and, and it, <laughs> folks, you have to excuse me, but we had a chat before, and then I went to the bathroom, and I thought of a title for this show. I like to title every show, because mm-hmm. I think it lets the listener know exactly what's happening. And... I had it in my mind, and now I'm actually going to use it after that, that intro you've just given. And it's called Be You, mm-hmm. which in the world that we live in now is quite unique. Very true. Now, you've come from, I mean, <laughs> it's a, we spoke about it before, but it's a crazy sort of merge of, of so many different things. I want to ask you, when was the first time you realized or had, what's your first recollection of having your mom from one country and your dad from quite a different country, English, Arab, England, and Libya? What's your first memory of that? I think one that sticks in my mind is riding a bike, as simple as that sounds. So where I grew up, girls didn't ride bikes. Um, you just never go out in the street and see a girl on a bike, right? Yeah. It's just not a done thing. And my dad, uh, my dad's a pilot, so he travels a lot, and he comes home one day with this bike. He'd done a flight to Europe, and he's like, oh, I've got you this bike. And at the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, how, where am I going to go? Like, where am I going to ride this bike? E- even as a child, I mean, I must have been about 10, I think. Yeah. But I knew that it wasn't a place where I could get on a bike, and my mom was like... No, you will ride a bike and you go out there and, you know, show the kids that you, you can do what you want. We've told you it's okay, so go out and do it. So I think when I went out on my bike, as, as sort of simple as that sounds, that was the start of me maybe breaking barriers, mm. you know, doing things that other kids weren't doing and realizing that I was different. Things like Halloween, <laughs> you know, <laughs> simple thing like Halloween. My mum would be like, right, what are you dressing up as for Halloween this year? And I'm like, mum, you know, where we lived in, in Brega, it's 100% Libyan. There wasn't that many expats. And you want yeah. me to dress in like a fairy costume or whatever and go out trick-or-treating, I'm probably going to get beaten up. Um, <laughs> but my, my parents did an amazing job of making sure that I understood that I belonged to two different cultures, you know, and giving me that kind of the confidence, you know, to say, well, yeah, you will be that Arab kid that goes out trick-or-treating, as strange as that might sound, and you will be that Arab kid that gets on a bike when no one else is riding a bike. But that gave me an amazing foundation as a kid, right, to just... How did it feel, like... Petrifying at the beginning. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did. I do. Ha- I do recall not such a nice story, but I do recall having stones thrown at me one Halloween yeah. by other kids. You know, going, "Well, you're Muslim. You can't celebrate Halloween," and they were throwing stones at me and stuff. But so there was times where it was a little bit scary, but then it became cool to be different, and I felt more and more empowered by my parents to be me yeah. <laughs> um, and to do what felt comfortable for me. So I learned to adapt and that's how I kind of just became a bit rebellious, I guess, and just a bit <laughs> different. But then I never really fit into either world. You yeah. know, I'm never, when I'm with my British friends, I'm the Arab 
when I'm with my Arab friends, I'm the brick because I'm different. Yeah. Um, so I think, especially when you're from two completely different cultures, you have to get to a place where you're completely comfortable in your own skin and you're not trying to be more one or the other. You know? That was quite, must be quite easy to say now because you are obviously super, super comfortable and you've yeah. been through all that you've been through. But mm-hmm. I, I have those two images in my mind. I have a 10-year-old girl on a new bike, which in, I guess, the Western culture and a little bit more now, maybe Middle Eastern culture as well, is a huge day when you get your first bike. Yeah. Like folks that are listening can probably, like we've created this, this image in their, in yeah. their mind. And okay, we're petrified to ride it. Why? Yeah. Because we don't want to fall off, mm-hmm. and, and that's failure. But you're actually scared because the culture and the society—that's just not normal. Yeah, exactly. That must be, and 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 then obviously Halloween as well. It's yeah. funny. Again, my mind's racing. The amount of things <laughs> that probably you didn't get that your mother got, but then th- there's two th- there's two sides to it. But yeah. when that feeling of being scared it soon becomes, I'm a little bit special. Correct. Talk to, talk us, talk to us about that. Like, and do, do you leverage it? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And switch between the two, whatever works better for me at the time. Really? Um, so, yeah, but I think where I really felt the difference is when I moved to the UK. That's when I felt I was special. Yeah. Um, in Libya, I felt, yes, I was different, more different than special. Yeah. Um, and then when I moved to the UK at the age of 15, I realized that my whole world in Libya and my experience of life and travel and even simple things like food, right? And then I come to an English school where lunch is like mashed potatoes and pie, <laughs> right? I realized that my life is really different and... Yeah. I felt special, you know, and all my teachers were like, wow, you're so unique, you know, you you studied in Arabic and now here you are like trying to learn, you know, Macbeth and everything, (laughs) English and Shakespeare and stuff. Uh, How are you you doing that? And I just felt different and special and unique. Um, And so I, I think that was the first time I really felt that is when I moved to an English school and felt that my life was... I'd experienced so much even as a child that I was different to the average 15-year-old in the UK at school. And I don't mean that in a negative or positive way. It's It's just my my life experience was huge, you know, in comparison to a 15-year-old in the UK that had maybe grown up in that area, stayed in that area, maybe never traveled or didn't even know where Libya was. I mean, none of the kids, they were like, where are you from? And I said, Libya. And they were like, no idea what you're talking about. How did that make you feel? Like... Been again. It's it's almost like these different situations. You've been the odd one out, mm. but you've gone back to your your mother's home country, and yeah. you're but you're bringing half of your father's heritage with you as well. Yeah, totally confusing. <laughs> totally confusing because you know Arab culture, especially for young girls, we're quite conservative. Mm. You know, it's like again, I go back to the sports comment that I made and and trying to adapt to a whole new way of life Mm. in an English school that's 100% British it's very difficult Um, not to mention studying subjects in English when I'd been doing it in Arabic all my life and trying to sort of convert. How was your English at at that point? Oh same as always I mean my mum bless her heart did an amazing job of like you know She's like, well, you're half English, and you can speak properly, you know. So you've got, you've got a very, you've got, actually got quite a posh English accent now. <laughs> it's the school. <laughs> you work on that. It's the school, yeah, because people from Cumbria don't speak like that <laughs> where I was born. But yeah, so did I you think rock up with an Arab accent? I didn't actually. Because again, that because was my mom. mom. You yeah. know, because if I'd say things like "I want water," <laughs> my mom would be like, "It's water," <laughs> really? and you say "please," and you say "thank," but even simple things like that, yeah, like yeah. I wouldn't say "please" and "thank you" to my grandma in Libya. Right. I just open her fridge and eat whatever's in there and help myself because that's our culture, right? Yeah. We don't say. And then when I went to the UK, you say "please" and "thank you" for everything. 
Like at the end of every sentence, you're saying thank you or you're apologizing or you're saying please or it's like continuous, you yeah. know? And I think, yeah, the big difference I think between me and the average 15 year old was confidence. Like I felt that at school. When I went to English, when I, when I went to school in England, yeah. I was like, yeah, I feel a lot more confident in my own skin and who I am and, and you know, just different experience it could have gone different. a lot the other way though right yeah why do you think it played out so positively for you um a couple of things i think my parents knew that if we went into a certain type of school in the uk we were just going to get beaten up right yeah, they knew they were like these kids are coming fresh out of libya you know going to a school in the uk it's just they're going to get their heads kicked in yeah for sure so my parents were very selective in the school that we went to and I think made sure that we were in a place where we would sort of be looked after and, and you know, they understood that we were a bit different, my siblings and, and I, that were a bit different and everyone made a huge effort to, you know, That's understand. Nice. Yeah, a bit more. So I think that was the first thing. And the second thing is probably going back to that point of being like resilient, rebellious fearless you know yeah. from a very young age because that 10 year old's out on a bike yeah and and going against the grain sort of very early on yeah. um so i was kind of fearless i suppose at that age feeling a bit like you know what it might be really uncomfortable at the beginning and yeah. i am different of course i am but i know that i could i'll find my way sort of thing and i did do you think like, resilience is, is an interesting thing. Mm. We, later in life, we question how to build it, and some people have even made livelihoods out of teaching people how to become resilient. Yeah. You were brought up in an environment that was, as you said, it was the Bedouin sort of style. Yeah. When did you realize that that was sort of, like, that was teaching you? You'd built this... Because you, you've built your resilience yeah. in those early years, haven't you? Did yeah. You, was there, is there a point where, or do you just look back now and go, ah, that's why that happened and that's why that happened? I can't pinpoint, yeah. you know, when I felt like, oh, this happened because of this or I now feel this way because of this. But I think I noticed it most when I was with my Western friends. Right. Now I'm probably going to get a lot of stick for this. But Are I'm you just calling them all soft? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, a little bit. <laughs> um, but I think maybe the average person in that part of the world, yeah. their definition of a problem is very different. <laughs> it's not a problem at all. <laughs> yeah. I agree with you. Um, it's like, you know, I can't leave the house today because my hair's too flat or, yeah. you know, I'm feeling a bit overweight so I don't want to go out and I don't... And I just... That took me some time to understand because growing up in Libya and especially after everything that's happened in Libya, it's like my definition of a problem or my tolerance for smaller problems. I shouldn't say I know everybody sees their problem as a uh, <laughs> problem. Um, yeah, but, but let's just say that, you know, for me, that's when I realized it would be when I'm in a crowd like that and we'd be talking and everyone would react in that way. Well, oh, this is terrible. You know, gosh, yeah. how could this happen? And I'd be like, it's no biggie. Just get up and start crack again. On. You know, just yeah. crack on with life. OK, whatever this person, this happened or this happened, lose your job, whatever. It's, you know, in the Middle East, people are losing homes and, yeah. and you know, and it's just, it's, um, yeah, you, you soon feel that there's that difference in mentality and in and coping with problems and how you look at things and how you define a problem. So I, I It's an interesting one, that. isn't it? I, had, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day and, and he was like, is it me or are people becoming weak? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a similar conversation with yourself? Yes. Yeah, and it's like, but I, I think that, well, maybe the Marcus I want to think I am or, or want to become always tries to be empathetic towards that person mm -hmm. and to try and understand why they, why they see that, you know, their hair's not whatever yeah. you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get too much yeah. into hair. But, you know, why are they feeling mm. that that's the end of the world? Whereas 
you know, and it's quite, sometimes you feel maybe you've been a bit self-righteous as well. Like, I've just come from Libya, guys. Calm yeah, down. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. But my question is, are we getting, are we a bit soft? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. I, I mean, I'm trying not to say that. Yeah. But yes, the honest truth is I, I do feel that way. I think society as a whole, everyone is just a bit soft nowadays. You Why know? do you think that's happened? Um, I'm asking you to fix all the world's problems. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, gosh, this is not what I was expecting today. No, I should have come not. prepared. Um, but I just think it gets a lot of attention, mm. you know? It's these smaller problems, or let's say these problems which you think are huge, mm. by getting attention from society, especially on social media and creating that culture of, you know, look at me, this has happened in my life and I'm going to film every moment of it and share it on my, you know, platform. I can't relate to that. I can't. Yeah, yeah you're the I, hardest guest. I told you this before. You're the hardest guest I've ever been able to research. Yeah. See, there you go. Have you done that on purpose? Yes. Why? I'm an 80s kid. Like, I'm not interested in sharing my life on <laughs> social media platforms. Really? But, you know, no, it's not, not intentional, but, you know, it's... Uh, do you use social media? I mean, I do. Yeah. But my friends will tell you, the people who follow me have to check in time to time to see that I'm actually alive. Really? You know, I had a friend from school who actually thought I still lived in Cumbria where I went to school. And I mean, it's a long time since I was at school. Or were they on your MySpace page or something? <laughs> yeah, they're like, here, you're still on MySpace. Friends reunited. Yeah. So I just, just never, I've never had sort of that pull to share, right? And it's funny, actually, we're talking about this now because now I am going through something that I really feel I should be sharing. Yeah. And if I don't, I'm not doing myself or the community justice by not sharing so we'll come to that yeah. but isn't that because of the way that we communicate and because of the power of social media mm. you're in a unique position but you've always been in a unique position because you're half english half libyan you've got a beautiful posh accent but can swear at me in arabic yeah so like <laughs> so you've always had a strong position mm. i think also there's an element of when you grow up in, in the Arab world, sharing too much of your private life is yeah. not something that's encouraged. You know, it's like keep your business yeah. to yourself. So I think that maybe that subconsciously, yeah. that probably has something to do with it because you're like, well, you know, I shouldn't be really sharing what I'm doing with everybody yeah. and I shouldn't be telling people that this is where I am and this is what I'm doing and I shouldn't boast and I should stay humble and I should... So you like just go through this like, and you're like, just cut it, no need. Just forget it. So what do you do with the extra like five hours in a day that normal people spend on social media? <laughs> Look at other people's social media. <laughs> so you're on yeah. social media. I'm that you're creep looking that's at, like looking through creep. everybody else's stories really? going, oh yeah, but not doing any of it myself. Really? And going, oh, that's amazing that she did this and that this person did this and you know, and like go to social social media for any research I want to do. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I mean, but this is recent. This is recent. That's why I can feel the shift now is that, you know, by remaining sort of in this private sort of like cloud, yeah. um, I'm, I'm not really doing anyone justice. Do you think that, I mean, so if we were to try and put it in, in, in a little bit of a box, your, your strategy or what you're comfortable with, your strategy has been to use social media for your own benefit, to find information out about people, whether it's news, no matter what it is, but maybe because of subconscious behavior, you haven't felt like being prevalent on social media or sharing yes. a lot of, of, of your life. Yeah. So it still plays a big part, but do you think there's something, I'm just trying to... Something deeper? Yeah. Actually, I've just thought of something when you said that. <laughs> Because being half English and, I mean, when I lived in Libya, we'd go back to the UK every holiday, like for my mum to see, so we could see our English cousins and I'd yes. go back for Easter or Christmas or whatever it was. So we were very privileged in Libya and where I grew up specifically, there were a lot of kids that didn't have that privilege. 
So I would be in the UK buying the latest whatever. My brothers were buying Playstations and I'm like in my, you know, Nike trainers yeah. and whatever. But kids weren't wearing that in, in Brega. You know, life was very simple. It was a Bedouin lifestyle, as I mentioned. Mm. So my parents were always like, don't show off. Don't wear these things when you go and play with other kids. Don't be telling anyone you have a, you know, a PlayStation and don't do this really? and don't do that. So it was always about trying to, I wouldn't say fit in, but just not making sure we didn't make anyone feel uncomfortable. Mm. So I almost feel like social media is a bit braggy. Yeah. So, and that, that doesn't feel comfortable for me. So if I was to challenge you to... You can pick the platform, mm. TikTok, Snapchat. MySpace. MySpace, <laughs> Friends Reunited, all of them. <laughs> and document your your journey and, and one of the things that we're, we're going to talk about. That would make you feel incredibly uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, terrible. I mean, I've just started doing it and it's literally killing my soul. Really? Yeah. What's the feeling? Cringe. Really? Yeah. Why? Hmm... Cause, because I think, especially, and I suppose we'll get onto it with what I'm going through, I'm in a different position to many other people who are going through this same journey. Mm. So I almost feel it's a fine line between helping people and making people feel bad because they don't feel that way. Mm. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, I do. So it's, I feel a bit, responsible when I shouldn't I'm probably thinking way too deep into this right because I should think well I want to talk about my journey mm. I'm going to share it with whoever sort of is interested and, and wants to see what I'm doing and learn from what I'm doing and not think too deeply into yeah. it but then I think okay well what about people who are gonna look at that and be like oh you know it's all right for her because she's not suffering and you know it so I have this kind of mental battle where I'm thinking about how I'm affecting people Way too much, probably. That's my mom's side. Do you, yeah, I was going to say. She's emotional. It's my mom's Really? Side. Yeah. She's Lots just of emotion on your mom's side. Huge empath, yeah. She's just cries at everything, you know, and so it's, yeah. And dad's the polar opposite? Or? Complete opposite. Yeah. Like a, a building could blow up behind my dad and he'll just carry on walking and grab his coffee. You know, he's solid. Really? Absolutely solid. Nothing can shake my dad. Does... Did you receive a lot of open love from him when you were younger? Yes, a lot. Despite his yes. ability to <laughs> yes. have a building blow up. Yep. But uh, as his daughter, you were still... Yes, still always felt like number one, but my dad was also tough. You know, he was also like, well, you need to move... To, when, when I left the UK, uh, left Libya to go to the UK, my dad explained to me exactly why at the age of 15, because I couldn't understand. Like, I have my friends here. I love yeah. my life. I'm going to the beach. Life's amazing. Why do I want to move to Cumbria? No offense. <laughs> but, you know, my mom's from Carlisle, and it's not the most happening city. I'm like, why do I want to move there? And my dad was like, you don't understand today the privilege that you have. You're an Arab with a British passport. You don't understand what that means. Yeah. But he's like... And add to that that you're going to be educated in the United Kingdom and have choices, Samia. You will have choices, whereas maybe the average Libyan would not have those choices, right? And at the time, I was like, my dad's just ruining my life, you know, sending me to the UK and taking me away from my friends. But now that I'm older, I realize why my dad was so tough with me, you know, and he was like, you, you, you've got to go out there and do this. You've got to finish your degree. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And then you can choose where you want to live in the world. Yeah. You can choose where you want to work. You have choice. And that word choice is the biggest gift yeah. that many people from my part of the world do not have. Because there are people in Libya who are, you know, educated, um, have so much talent, yeah. And so much potential. But if you have a Libyan passport, it's very difficult. Yeah. It's very difficult to get to have choice, to get up and leave, to find a job, to go somewhere else. So I think my dad was definitely very loving but tough. But it must be there must be two things when you see him now, when you think of him now. One is an immense amount of gratitude 
from your side. Yeah. In yeah. in that tough love. Yeah. And the second thing I can imagine from from what I've heard so far from your stories, how proud he must be of what you've made of it all. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> Does he tell you? All the time. Does he? All the time. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, all the time. But you know, it's you're gonna make me emotional saying that. <laughs> no, yeah, I think it's it's I I see it obviously now that I'm older. You yeah. know, I, I understand what he could see and yeah. what he was trying to do and the choice he was trying. Like a funny little story, I'll keep it brief, but yeah. when I was eighteen I'd finished my A levels. I went back to Libya. And um, I had pressure from my, you know, family and friends. It's okay, it's time to get married. You know, you're 18, you've done your degree. um, So now it's time to settle down. And I felt pressured, so I was like, okay, I'm in. And cut a long story short, I went for, let's say, a traditional arrangement of, you know, you help me select someone and... You know, yeah. we go through all of that. And I thought my dad would be over the moon because then I ticked all the boxes. I was mm. educated abroad. I did everything I was supposed to do. I came back home. Now I'm going to get engaged and everyone can be really proud of me because I'm, you know, going to get married. And my yeah. dad was like, absolutely no chance. My dad, wow. what, what are you talking about? You're 18 years old and stuff. And I was like, oh, but dad, you know, I want to get married and stuff. And and. He gave me a completely different response and reaction, which was shocking at that age. But he was like, look, we'll make a deal. Go to uni for a month. If you hate it, you can come back and get married. Right. If you love it, then you, you have your answer. Well, I was there seven days, and I called my dad, and I was like, not coming home. <laughs> was he happy with that? So he, he must have been. Over the moon. Yeah. Which, again, for an Arab father, that's, you know, it's not, let's say, typical of a, of a Libyan dad or... You have siblings, mm-hmm. brothers, sisters. Two brothers and a sister. Where do you sit in the age? Eldest. <sighs> Tough job. <laughs> the one that pays for everything. Oh, really? Yeah. Even it's, now? It's a tough job. <laughs> yeah. You're in it for life. Really? So, yeah. That must have played as well. You're the firstborn. Yeah. To, to your father, but... Yeah, I mean, he'd seen everything. So his hindsight or his foresight and what he's set you up for is is phenomenal. Yeah. He calls me his co-pilot, so I like that. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's really nice. It's really sweet. He's like, you know, I feel like you're... I feel now at this age that my dad can really rely on me, you know, that... That's nice. Yeah, which is... is But he made me that way. Yeah, You know, he he gave me that strength and stuff and, and resilience and confidence and now I feel like I can stand by my dad and and support him he allowed you to be you and he supported you he did he did which isn't a lot of people it can go a different way can't it especially Mm -hmm. I mean you and I are both not parents so we have to be a little bit careful talking about how we treat (laughs) (laughs) children but you see it a lot and and I deal with it quite a lot where we have kids and mm-hmm. is the parent living vicariously through through the child? Is that actually what the child wants? Like parents yeah. will bring their children here and say, I need my kid to work out. I say, okay, does the kid want to work out? Yeah. And they're like, I don't know. I said, well, I think the first point is, is, is to ask them. But your dad and your mom, of course, mm. guided you but let you feel things. Yeah. But as a parent, how do you find that balance? You know, because I feel like (laughs) society today is a bit more, you know, like, oh, let the child say how they feel and let them say what they want to do. And so you need that balance, I guess. But like you said, you know, I'm not a parent. And so I I don't know. But yeah, I think my my mom and dad did a really good job of giving me that balance where I knew I couldn't mess with my dad. You know, it's not like I could sit here and go, well, if I want to do it, he'd be like, I don't think so. And yeah. I'd be like, okay. But there's, it so, sounds like there was this mutual respect as yeah. well. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of being from two cultures because my yeah. parents balanced each other out. Yeah. You know, if my dad went too hardcore Arab, you know, my mom would be there being a bit Clipping soft, you know, she'd be like, Carlisle, oh, exactly, she'd be like, come on, <laughs> yeah, so I think that my parents really balanced each other, you know, yeah. in like their sort of parenting techniques, maybe, and yeah, we knew <laughs> how to work it though as well as kids, like we knew how to. <laughs> we touched on it before, five years ago, you were diagnosed with 
MS, multiple sclerosis. Talk us through that. How did that all start? And let's go yeah. there for a bit and see where we get to. Well, my mum has MS. And she's had it for about, I think, 12 years now. So I was familiar with the condition, mm. which a lot of people aren't when they're diagnosed. They're like, what is multiple sclerosis? So five years ago, I had sort of pins and needles, like a sensation of pins and needles in my legs. And it felt like my legs had gone to sleep permanently, almost, you know, like when you have a dead leg and you're just kind of, I thought, well, this is a bit strange. And I ignored it for about half a day. And then the next morning when I woke up, the numbness kind of and the tingling was all the way up to my stomach. And I was like, okay, this is a bit scary. And this was three months into me being married. So it's like, I just got married and I was thinking, was I just a bit stressed with the whole, you know, whatever. And I kind of blamed it on different things as we do when you know that something's happening and you think, oh, it's this or it's that. But then I thought it's abnormal to not be able to, f I, could, I could feel like the pins and needles, but I was numb. Like, you know, I, I could feel my foot touching the floor, but I was completely numb. So I wasn't sure how I was walking. I was walking perfectly normal, but it, it was a strange sensation. Cut a long story short, get to the doctors, see the neurologist and, you know, have all my tests. And he's like, it's MS. And I was like, but what? You know, like, and you immediately say really naive things to yourself, like, but I'm healthy and, you know, I don't eat junk food and I go to the gym and how could I have MS? So it was a shock. It was a shock. And I sort of went home for 24 hours. But again, it didn't. I didn't, it didn't sort of hit me like a ton of bricks. I kind of accepted it very quickly, which I know find, sounds strange to a lot of people, but I was like, okay, I've got this. So where do I go from here? How am I going to deal with this? And I went straight into planning mode, which I think is maybe my personality, but I go into problem solving and how can I overcome this? Or what can I do to make my life better so that I live well with MS? So, yeah, it took about a day to kind of sink in. I had my... Yeah. Everyone's going, what? <laughs> yeah. About a, I mean, I had my day of kind of sadness, feeling sorry for myself, a few tears, you know, and I was like, but how? Are they sure, you know? And the doctor was like, you know, spinal fluid doesn't lie, so definitely you've got multiple sclerosis. And MS has a very bad reputation, I mean, the worst thing you can do to your soul is Google multiple sclerosis. If you have it or if you're newly diagnosed, do not do that <laughs> because it's not good. Um, and the stories are not very encouraging and there's not much hope out there. So I did that for a little bit. And this is where the social media addiction came in. I was like, right, I'm going to go on Instagram and find people who are living well with MS. You know, like, how can I find somebody that gives me a bit of hope that's like, I can just focus on people living well rather than what could be, the yeah. negatives of what could be. Um, was, that, was that easy to find? Absolutely not. No. I mean, I found four mm. in the beginning, and that was me going stalk mode, you know, like really YouTube everything. I, I was like, yeah, I made a lot of effort. To it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, I remember... My wife, Holly, has, has a rare disease in her knee where behind her knee she grows, like, benign tumours or something like this. Oh, gosh. And you basically, they cut the whole knee open from mid of your quad down to your shin and they pull the whole knee joint out and clean it all out. And she was, she said she had to have this operation. The doctor said she had to have this operation. And so she did the same thing, which I think is quite a natural reaction you mm. sort of go and try and find some information and yeah. there's Facebook groups and I remember I can see it so clearly now we were, we were in the house that we used to live in and she was literally after dinner we sit on the couch and she's looking at her phone and she's almost looking through her phone and just crying not making noise but I could Aww. see all these tears coming down her face yeah. and she obviously was just in this Facebook group and it was all about things that had gone wrong and horrible pictures of like brutal scars and like, you know the big staple marks yeah. that you get on oh. and I yeah. mean and what does that do to your soul and when you're trying to find to like 
It's you know, that's what yeah, that's why I asked and I had a similar conversation with her and I said, Well, I'm sure a lot of people have it's gone bad. Mm. So there's probably a few people that's gone good as well. But yeah. we need to if we can't find those people, yeah, kind of need to stay protect that environment and, and, and stay away. That's why I asked how much good stuff yeah, you found. I mean, I I don't know. Are we just more of a sort of a culture that likes to talk about things when we're in a bad place or do we like to sort of you know share more when we're in a vulnerable space yeah. and share less when you're doing well and you're happy are there lots of people out there who are doing well but just choose not to talk not about to it talk about it i don't know because you go what's the phrase misery loves company but yeah. what does joy love <laughs> anyway no, loneliness <laughs> yeah i mean yeah so you Anyway, so you found a few people in social media. Keep so I found a few people. Um, and then there was like these, you could feel that I was going through that decision-making process of do I want to take medication or not? MS doesn't have a cure, um, but there are drugs out there. Mm. Um, a neurologist will immediately want to put you on drugs. And but when you ask the question, well, will this? What will this stop? Why am I taking? And they say it stops the progression or it slows down the progression. So you're like, okay, well, of course I want to slow down the progression, but what are the side effects? And so you go through this whole process of research. Mm. Now I'm a reader, so I, I I took my time in making my decision, but I very quickly worked out that on social media there's two big hype groups: one that's totally against medication and one that's for. Not many that have an integrated approach, mm. right? So why can't you do both? I don't know why, but mm. a lot of people choose not to. So the people who aren't on medication are like, this is, you know, poison. It's, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, rah, 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 all of that. Oh. And then you have the people who are on medication saying that people who are focusing on nutrition and lifestyle are deluded and crazy. Mm. So I definitely went through this kind of like, well, I don't, like, if I, if I do focus on lifestyle and nutrition, which was where I was sort of, the pull was there, not yeah. really the, the medication. But then if I don't know enough about the disease and I don't know enough about how it will progress, am I making the right decision by not taking the medication? Mm. So I made the decision to take the medication. And... I thought to myself, I'm going to try it once. If I have any reactions to it, I'm just, that's my sign to stop and it went well so I've continued with that but I work in parallel with a doctor who I trust a lot here in Dubai who's made a big difference to my life and she focuses a lot on my lifestyle and nutrition and then of course adding workout and gym to that I feel like it's almost like a puzzle yeah, right. You know, with different pieces and, and you need to have them all in place to be able to combat this disease because it's, it's tough. Is it progressing? So, this is the question that doctors can't answer. <laughs> so, if you ask a doctor, I'm going to get hate from neurologists. On <laughs> if you ask a doctor... I've called many doctors out on this okay, show. Okay. <laughs> so me all right, worry. fine. Um, if you ask a doctor what's sort of defined as progression in MS, right? They'll say, well, it's the number of lesions. Lesions are the, the white spots that you have on your brain and spine, which is the damage yes. caused, right, when you have an attack. or And you say, okay, number of lesions. What else? Um, symptoms, right? So, you know, and the symptoms can vary with MS, whether it's because it's a, a disease that affects the central nervous system. It can be any part of your body. Okay, symptoms, lesions... Anything else? No, pretty much that's it. So you have your MRI. So if I have my regular MRI once a year mm -hmm. and I have no lesion, new lesions, no progression in terms of where I started and, and where I am today, and I have no visible symptoms where I feel like I'm deteriorating or losing my mobility, does that mean I'm in remission or does that mean I'm doing well? Well, they'll always say no. And they'll say, no, no, don't. there's no such thing as remission. There's no such thing as getting better you're just not getting worse okay well am I progressing then if I don't have symptoms and if I don't have new lesions but that question is always very it's vague the answer is vague mm -hmm. so on paper I'm not mm. 
Um, you know, I, yeah, like you said, I've had it for five years now. I haven't had any progression in terms of my MRI results. I'm doing pretty well, but I work really hard, really hard. In what way? What's the, what's the hardest thing with it? Discipline. Discipline. As far as what? My life, I mean, it makes it sound like it's miserable, but it's, Actually, it's no different to, I suppose, an athlete or somebody who's serious about health. Mm. If you're committed to a goal in the gym or you're committed to, as an athlete, to, you know, um, you want to perform at a certain level or win a medal or your life becomes pretty structured. Mm. Your day-to-day life, what you eat, what time you go to bed, how much water you drink, whether you take your supplements, the people you surround yourself with. All of these things, you become conscious and you start, you know, thinking about your daily habits and what you're doing from day to day. Prior to this, I was the same as probably the average person who would grab a coffee, go to work, live in chaos, eat one croissant in the morning, not eat anything for the rest of the day, not think about anything else. You know, I've never sat there and thought, is my vitamin D at the right level? Or is my, you know, am I having enough magnesium in my diet? And these are things that I just never would have done. And unfortunately, I feel like we all, we look after ourselves and pay attention more once we've had that hit and a bit of bad news and we're scared, then all of a sudden we want to be disciplined. Why do you think that is? Fear. It's just fear. Why don't we do it before? It's just never going to happen, Marcus. It's just, I mean, I've asked myself this question. We're just, we're lazy and we take things for granted. We take things for granted. I mean, was am I ever going to wake up in the morning going, oh, amazing, my legs are working today. I'm so, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that I can get out of bed. And, you know, we don't do that as human beings. But why not? I don't know. I honestly. Because if we did, we could be different. Things could be different, couldn't they? Imagine. Well, you'd prevent any health issues. Right? You'd prevent a lot of disease. I think you'd prevent a lot of disease, yeah. If you look, if you took care of yourself. I'm not saying that all disease is, you know, it's just caused by lifestyle only. I mean, the research is is quite clear Mm -hmm. that a large percentage of, I mean, you look at what kills most people at the moment, heart disease, diabetes. Yeah. Sorry, but it's all related to all the things that you've, Pulled up, environment, yeah. food, and lifestyle habits. Like, it's it's crazy. It's funny because it's funny you say that about your legs because I, I did a show recently and I have this really weird ritual first thing in the morning that I literally, and, and it takes, I don't know when, I cannot tell you when I started doing it, so there was no real catalyst. But as soon as I put my feet on the floor when I get out of the bed, I literally... I scan my, I don't do what you said and go, oh, thank mm. fuck, my legs are Cheers, working legs. today. Thank you. But I'm like, how do I feel? Mm. And it's my first port of call. And I can remember doing it for, for a number of years now. Yeah. And not that I'm doing stuff right, but I'm always, I don't know, maybe I watched something when I was younger and someone's legs stopped working and yeah. it's just this, this image. But, but you're just aware. It's an awareness. You know, you're just yeah. aware and I'm not, you know... I don't want to say, oh, we should all sit here and have gratitude. And <laughs> no, I don't. I don't mean that. But yeah. I think definitely um, my diagnosis, anyway, was a blessing for me—a huge blessing. Yeah. Because I wouldn't be living the way that I am. Were you living badly before? No, but I was a um, maybe too much of a people pleaser. You know, doing all the right things, being the eldest. Hours here. <laughs> this is amazing. You give me like perfect yeah, segues uh, left and yeah, right. I'm just helping you out here. <laughs> Big time. Trigger words. Yeah. Um, too much of a people please, and I think obviously that comes from being the eldest as well. You right. know, make sure this person's okay. Make sure do this, do this right, do this right. Don't let that person down. Do this, and I think that I just did way too much of that. You yeah, know, and now it's almost like the MS has given me an excuse because I can just go sorry guys I'm not doing that did you know at the time you were doing that yeah I was exhausted were you yeah yeah and you didn't think think to make a change no because again we don't 
you know, make changes until we sort of really hit either reach <laughs> rock bottom or we have to change. Um, but I think, yeah, especially, you know, after the situation in Libya, I think there was a lot of uh, pressure after things happened in Libya and things like that. So I took over a lot of things in my family and, you know, um, my role in the family changed a little bit. And, you know, it's, yeah, it was it had a big impact on my life. And then from there, I think I've just always been that person that tries to please everyone and make sure everyone's happy and stuff. And, and I just, yeah, now I'm the opposite. Blunt, horrific. But you're probably happier. And if I was one of the receiving people, mm. I'm also happier. Mm. Because you were doing stuff because you felt you had to and it's stressing you out. And I was the only benefactor. You were developing a disease inside yeah. by, making, by trying to make me happy. Yeah. But now you've stopped. I have to be happier. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it feels so freeing and liberating to just say, like, no. You know, just, to, just say, actually, no, I'm not coming to this whatever it is, forced fun situation that you want me to be in tonight or this evening, or no, I'm too tired to do this, or I have too much on to do that for you today. And it, it just feels a sense of freedom. You know, just to be able to say things how they are and just say no to people. I wonder if you'd have come to this without MS. No. Are you sure? Yeah, definitely. Really? Yeah. And again, it's like that is the um, maybe the Arab side of, of my upbringing, you know, is always trying to don't upset this person, don't say that, go... You know, go see that lady, it'll make her happy. Don't forget, it's this person's wedding, so you need to show up, you need to go. So there's always that, you know, you have to keep showing up and mm. and keeping your life private at the mm. same time. So you can't say, oh, you know, I'm going through too much today, so I can't show up and, and, and be that person for you. So there's, I think I learned that definitely from my, my Arab side <laughs> more, than, more than English. But I think the MS is... It's definitely been a blessing in that area for me. So for all these years of your life, you've worn that facade, mm. if you want, and you've lived that Arab side. Yeah. But now you've been given this opportunity to, and, and to maybe share, to educate, to inspire, mm -hmm. and to go against what you're perhaps comfortable with and to share and, and go against sort of a lot of cultural and societal norms, be it from Libya, mm -hmm. be it from the Middle Eastern, like the UAE region of, of sharing illness. It's just generally not done and that's probably a whole other show on yeah, its own. Correct. But you're on the cusp now of wanting, or 20 minutes ago you were, <laughs> on the cusp of wanting to share your story to help other people. Yep. What does that look like? Um, I'm sort of, I'm in a bit of a battle with it, to be honest, um, because when I sort of went on this experience journey, whatever you want to call it, and I learned a lot from reading, I was desperate to share that information with other people that had MS. I was like, oh, this is great. And this is, you know, if you do this, this will help. And, and I wanted to share all of these tips because... I actually feel like I'm reversing my diagnosis, but that's a big thing for me to say to a community who maybe don't see that as a possibility, mm. right? So it's a bit of a lonely journey because you feel like that crazy person in the corner who says, you know, oh, I, I'm quite confident that I can live well with MS, and they're like, really? You know, so I, w I was desperate to share I wanted to share this knowledge and I had this image of creating so much impact and meeting people with MS and going, I know how to help you and, you know, read this book and I could help you with what, who you should see, what you should do. And, and so I went to a couple of um, like MS talks, uh, 
and they were like community organized events, people with MS in the UAE. And that was very educational for me. And I sat there and thought, ooh, I don't, I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. Wow. And I thought it would be com the complete opposite because I thought I'm going to go in there and feel really empowered and I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm going to start my social media page and I'm going to help people. And, and instead, I felt really quite depressed when I came away from the talk, I felt quite lonely in my mindset and what I was doing in comparison to everybody else and how they were coping with their MS. So I felt like I didn't belong. You know, I was like, okay, I'm wow. not really part of that community because the way I'm thinking is completely different to some of the patients who were there. I also realized that many of the MS patients that who were at this talk sort of were suffering in silence and hadn't even shared with their families that they have MS, which for me, I just, was really difficult, yeah, to, to understand. Um, so after a two or three times, I was like, well, I was totally wrong. That wasn't the right platform for me and that wasn't the right place. And I ended up feeling like, you know, I should just be a bit quiet and not say too much about how I'm managing my MS. Up until now, <laughs> because... I now feel that I'm doing something that's so much bigger than anything I've done in terms of challenge. <laughs> and I'm training for the London Marathon. And I feel, or I would feel really selfish if I didn't share my journey with people who, from the MS community, basically, um, just to give some hope. I would have loved to have found somebody when I was first diagnosed I would love to see someone training for a London marathon yeah. or a marathon I yeah. should say um, when I was newly diagnosed I would have been like well she's doing it so I can you know I can definitely overcome this disease or I, I definitely can still train because one of my biggest fears when I got diagnosed was not being able to work out right and the gym for me is a place of like you know happiness I love yeah. I love being in the gym and so I was like, well, what if, what if I can't work out anymore? And, you know, what if I can't do this? And what if I can't do that? So I desperately wanted that hope. So then I think if I found someone who was doing something like running a marathon or training in the gym or whatever they might be doing, it seems unfair for me not to share that. You know, it seems really unfair. It's interesting. Because I'm seeing two different behavioral patterns. Mm, that's what happens when you're half-half. <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. And this is conflicting personality. It's complete conflict mm. in in with the greatest respect. Yeah, of course. But it's complete conflict. It's against the first 30 minutes of our conversation about how you went on the bike, about how you let people throw stones at you for Halloween, about how you went to the school and you didn't fit in but then it all worked. But it's it's the other side of you, mm. which is the amazing thing of being from two different cultures. That, yeah. And as we've said, in, in the Middle East and Arab culture, in a number of cultures, let's not, let's not try and uh, put, put this in a hole or put this in a box as well. Yeah. In a number of cultures, being sick is taboo. Yeah. But you went into school in the UK, chest high, yep. shoulders back, mm -hmm. but you go into an MS meeting here and you withdraw in this weird way. You've obviously thought about this. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That's why I said I'm kind of having this battle in my mind of like, well, which way am I going to go? You know, like, am I, am I going to, am I just going to be like, right, okay, I'm just going to go on my own journey and, and not share this and do the whichever side this is and just keep it to myself yeah. or am I going to go with that 10 year old girl who was on the bike and having the stones thrown at her um, what does your heart say um I think I'm I think I'm yeah more towards leaning more towards the 10 year old yeah. <laughs> yeah I I have to because I have to do this yeah you know I don't even feel like it's an option I don't feel like it's an option. I just have to be more comfortable in sharing my life and 
my experience with strangers or even people I know, not just strangers, even people I know. Um, yeah. It's so weird because I have two things in my mind. The final stage of grief is acceptance. Mm-hmm. But the one of the things that is a book where the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu sit down. It's called the Book of Joy. And the first thing that they speak about to create everlasting joy is acceptance. Mm. And in everything you have, you're at the fifth stage of grief and you're at the first rule of Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. Like you have so much acceptance and so much passion and power that sharing this could be... Is this the first time you've spoken about it? On a public platform? Uh, this is the first time I've been on a public platform is ever, Marcus. Yes. So consider yourself lucky, but I, I do. I'll give Arish a special shout out here. Uh, yeah, we haven't even <laughs> spoken about Arish. She'll be furious. Yeah, she'll, she'll be, be furious. Like, Where's my mention? I to say my name. Yeah, Arish, but, um, I love you very much, Arish. Today, <laughs> today was my first step, basically. This, this is huge for me for, to, to talk, to open up, to talk about my family my experience my background you know but I feel I, so honored oh thank you well, thank absolutely. you thank you for inviting me here right and yeah, you know what's, you. Uh, what's absolutely ironic is Arish found the gym because of the podcast oh wow yeah one of her friends somehow shared the podcast with her and she's like for some reason I was talking and she's like I like what this idiot's saying and she came and knocked on the door wow so I didn't very, know that yeah yeah, it's just made me... Yeah. That's crazy. Erij, you see, I, the reason Erij and I connect is because I'm sure we have a lot of similarities in how we grew up and, and what we went through and the resilience yeah. and being a rebel and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, she's... Yeah. I have so many good and, and stories about Erij that I'm insanely proud of. Yeah, it's, she's incredible. She is. Yeah, she she's really an inspiration. Is. Yeah. She is, and, so. and, 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 and I'm going to share one. It, it was quite funny because when she first came to the gym, we used to have, like, this beginner's class, and um, she was very comfortable to go to it. And she came – I was teaching it one day, and she came up to me. She said, yeah, this is all right, but, you know, like, next week I'm going to be in the, like, normal class. And I just taught her, and she was not ready for that class. Yeah. Let's put it that way. And, and – I think she knew it, and I don't think she would mind me saying this, but I was like, hey, you'll actually be just fine down there. Because it was, we taught the <laughs> beginners upstairs, and it was almost, we weren't keeping them away, but, and then she, we were looking over the thing, she said, I'll be down there next week. I was like, this is an amazing confidence. And my yeah. gut reaction was to go, hang on, mate. You were like, oh, no. Just, yeah, <laughs> but I was just like, you know what? Yeah. You'll be absolutely fine. And, and yeah. you, you have a, you both have a very, a very stern confidence, which I think is, uh, which is amazing. I've taken an hour of your time. We have to do more. We have to get you back. We have to help you however we can, whenever you're ready for sharing the, the journey. There's, we could have gone in, in, in a number of different ways. It's, there's so many different points of acceptance from social media, exception, acceptance culturally, but yeah. we're here and, and I'd love to get you back in... Whenever you're ready, because I think, yeah. When I'm famous, Marcus. I mean, that's it. You I'll can be like, sorry, I'm too busy. Yeah, I have too many. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you be like, actually, this thing's really taken no, off. And uh, I mean, we didn't kidding. even get into what what you do, what you do for a living, and all these exciting things. And but it's been, it's uh, I think, in the hour that we've spoken, I've learned a whole heap. I'm sure a lot of people have, and. I really appreciate you, Samia. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.